So we're going to be talking a little bit about baptism. Now, I guess the best place to start in a discussion on baptism is to define what we mean by baptism, right? He who controls the definitions controls the conversation, and I'm the one with the clicker. So I'd like to define baptism, and I promise you this was a lot easier to read on my computer. All right, baptism. All right. Uh, you know, I, I think it's possible for us to just kind of take for granted our familiarity with this. Most of us, a lot of us, grew up in the church. We're used to seeing people get dressed in robes and stand at the front of the room, and half of them get wet. We're kind of accustomed to that as a process, and I, I've often considered just how confusing that must be for a person that came in, you know, that didn't grow up in the church and didn't see this as a regular practice. Like, I, who, why are you, what's the, the game plan here? So we want to you know, explain and define the term. So when I'm saying baptism here, what I mean is an ordinance of the church. And by ordinance, I just mean a ceremony. It's a a practice that we gather together regularly to do, whereby an individual believer professes his or her faith in Jesus Christ with immersion under water. And that's what I mean by baptism. It's an ordinance. It's a ceremony. It's a thing we do. I wouldn't go so far as to say ritual, but it is a practice that we employ, that we employ where individual believers, one and two, come before the church and say, I want to make you aware that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. And in doing that, they stand before the congregation and they go underwater. And I think that's a pretty decent definition. I think it works. It explains pretty clearly what's going on. But as good as that definition is, it still leaves quite a few unanswered questions. I mean, I guess I have a grid for what they're doing up there in the baptismal tank, but I don't really know why they're doing it or or what it's designed to do. And so my goal tonight is to try to answer some of those unanswered questions about baptism. Perhaps you're here and, and you're kind of new to the church and new to Christianity and you don't really know what baptism is. I hope to answer that. Perhaps you've been in the church for a long time and you've never really understood, well, I know we do baptism, but I don't know why we do baptism. And so my goal is to answer those questions. And I'm going to do that by talking about some things that baptism is, or more accurately, some things that baptism does and some things that baptism does not, and hence the title of this sermon, Duncan Do's and Duncan Do Nots. If you're not laughing at that, then I don't think you and I are going to be friends later. Uh, my wife thinks it's hilarious, and I can say that because she's in a wanna or, or nursing right now, so I can get away with that. So I want to tell you some things that baptism does and some things that baptism does not. First of all, it's very important that we understand baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. Now, it's kind of begging the question, what, what do you mean save me? What does this word save even mean? Sure, baptism doesn't save me, but what do I need to be saved from? The Bible uses that term, being saved, but what's it describing and how does baptism fit into it? Well, that's where we have to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. You see, as a foundational principle, we understand, we recognize, we believe that there is a God and that that God is holy, holy holy. He created everything that exists by speaking it into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be stars, and there were stars. God said, let us create man in our image, and he created us male and female in his image. God is 
the sovereign creator of all things. All of this universe belongs to God, and that God is a holy God. He is completely separated from all wickedness, from all evil. Scripture says that his eyes are too pure to look on sin. God is righteous. That means that everything he does in all of his actions is always corresponding to that which is his own moral perfection. God is just. That means that he will by no means permit injustice and wickedness to go unchecked. God, who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, will bring justice in his wake wherever he goes. But that causes a problem for us. You see, the reality is that each one of us has been born into rebellion against God. We inherited a sinful nature from our father Adam, and so our hearts are little Fort Sumters, firing the opening salvos of sinful rebellion against God from the cradle. We reject God's sovereignty. We reject His authority. Frankly, we're a little ticked off that He got to create the world, and we didn't. And we're angry. Every one of us. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And every act of sin that we engage in is an act of rebellion that deserves divine punishment. The wages of sin is death. So that leaves us with a problem, right, my friends? We are on a collision course with the righteous wrath of God. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. And we can't do it ourselves. The Bible says that the standard that God holds us to is perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We have no hope, no shot. All that we could ever do in hope to achieve perfection, we've already failed to give Him. So anything extra we do is just stuff we would have done anyway. We are in a classic catch-22. There's no hope for us to achieve God's standard of moral perfection, and yet the God who is perfectly holy and righteous and just will bring punishment to injustice. In fact, the way the Apostle Paul describes our predicament is that we're dead men in Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, he says even as the rest of mankind. We need salvation. We need to be redeemed. We need to be saved. And we can't do it ourselves, and we are dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loves us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Now, most of us are familiar, many of us are familiar with that passage from the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We've heard it as many times as we could possibly count, but have you ever stopped to consider and work out the logic of what Paul is saying there? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, through faith, not as a result of works so that no one could boast. It's the gift of God, not the result of your works. Think about the logic of that. Who's the one doing the saving, us or God? God. What's the motivation behind salvation? What's God's mercy and God's great love? What's the basis upon which salvation is extended to us? How do we achieve salvation? It's a gift of grace. Paul says, even while we were dead, 
God made us alive? Through what mechanism does God accomplish that salvation? On what sacrifice does God make us saved? Well, together with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, God caused him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What that means is that when Jesus Christ ascended the cross, he took on all of the sin and all of the punishment and all of the wrath that our work of rebellion so rightly deserves and absorbs all of it in our place. And he does so physically, really, in a real body, on a real cross, with real blood being spilt, with a real heart that stopped beating and a real body that was put into a real tomb. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, it didn't stay there. He was buried and raised again on the third day. And that means that when God made Christ alive again, so also he makes all those who have been united to Christ alive again. And so we ask this question, then how does God affect this salvation? How are we saved? By giving us faith. Again, this is not our doing. It's not the result of our work. It's a gift. It's faith, and it is faith alone which is what God uses to save us. Now, we understand that faith includes repentance. Like the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion. We understand that faith includes belief, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We understand that it is faith, and faith alone, which we receive as a gift from God, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of his grace and his great love and mercy, that saves us. And we need to make that clear in a baptism class. I'm sure some of you are wondering when I'm ever going to say the word baptism again. We need to make this clear because not everyone believes that. Not everyone walks into our doors understanding that only faith saves us. There's folks who come out of a Roman Catholic background or out of a baptismal regeneration background who think, "Ah, it's this act, it's this ordinance, it's this ceremony, it's this sacrament, and if I do that thing, that thing will save me. That it's this activity that I do that, that God then counts as efficacious towards my salvation. But Paul says to Titus, that's not how it works. He saves us not on the basis of deeds which we've done, not even deeds which we've done in righteousness, he says, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand, before we even talk about what we're doing in baptism or what baptism does, we need to know that baptism does not save us. It's only faith. And you might say, whoa, 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 Alex, I've read in my Bible. What about 1 Peter 3, 21? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Checkmate. Gotcha, Saren Palin style. What are you going to do with that one, Alex? Well, let's see. If we were to read 1 Peter chapter 3, this is what it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Peter, who understands in a very visceral and real way what it is to receive the forgiveness of God. This is the same Peter who went in the matter of a few hours from defending Christ and in rejecting Jesus' prophetic word that he would deny him and pulling out his sword and cutting off Malchus's ear. The same Peter in just a few hours would deny Jesus three times. That same Peter who would turn in shame and run away only to be restored by Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. That Peter says, this is the gospel. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's some big words going on there in 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism corresponds to this. Well, corresponds to what? He corresponds to the act of God's rescue on the ark. And it doesn't matter whether it's ark or whether it's sin, he's saying baptism corresponds to that. It points to that. It's a picture of that. It directs us to that. And he wants to make it very clear here that baptism, it's not the activity that saves us. It's not the ceremony that saves us. It's not the ordinance that saves us. He makes that very clear in this passage. It's not through the removal of dirt from the body. It's not about getting in the water or out of the water. And that's actually a pretty neat thing that we'll talk about sometime, but... It's not the activity of baptism that saves you. It's what baptism corresponds to. It's what baptism points to, and that is an appeal to God for new hearts on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's a very important thing to understand. Baptism saves us insofar as it points to the work of God's salvation. And I have to make that clear in the baptism class because there are a lot of people that reach out to me and say, Alex, I, I want to get baptized. I, I want to get baptized in order to get right with the Lord. We need to understand we're not made right with God apart from anything other than crying out to God from our hearts for salvation. And it doesn't matter whether it's getting into the water with a pastor or whether it's helping a little old lady across the street or whether it's giving all of our, uh, of our worldly possessions to the church and the offering plate. None of those things make us right with God. Baptism corresponds to the work of salvation. It points to the work of salvation. And it saves us insofar as it's the testimony of our appeal to God for our salvation. God is never pleased with just mere ceremonies. We know this from the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophet writes, speaking for Yahweh, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or David writes in Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those. We know the prophet Isaiah writes in the first chapter, Speaking for the Lord, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God's never pleased with mere ceremony or ordinance or sacrament. It's only through a faithful, contrite heart that makes its appeal to God on the basis of faith born out of His great mercy and love through Jesus Christ that saves us. 
So we might ask this question, and well we would do, well, if baptism doesn't save you, Alex, then what does baptism do? Well, first of all, baptism does become a symbol of our union with Christ. And we understand symbols. We know what they do. Symbols point to greater realities. So we've all seen the, the blue shirt with the red cape and the S in the middle of it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? I, I'm really hoping that all of you are right now thinking of our Foundry Retreat poster with Steve Holly and Bobby Little on it, because if you are, cha-ching, that worked. You know, we understand that symbols point to something greater than they are. In fact, uh, this fall, I'm going to be doing four weddings this fall and winter, because I can't say no to things. And, and we all understand that if I got there, and I were to say at this wedding, please hand me the rings, and they hand me their rings, and I hold up this thing, and I say, this ring, well, this now binds you to your wife. I mean, we all understand that it's not the ring that does it, Right? That that ring is a picture of something. I mean, George Jones and Tammy Wynette will tell you it's not the ring that does it. Oh, gosh, I love that people laughed at that. All right. The ring is just a picture. It's a symbol. It, it points to a greater reality, the, the, the shared love and commitment and faithfulness that you have. That's what actually binds you together. The ring is just the picture of that. Now, the ring, a wedding ring, is a beautiful symbol. It's an appropriate symbol. It's a good symbol for such a thing. It's, it's made out of precious materials because just like our wedding should be precious to us, our marriage should be precious and cost us dearly and be highly valued to us. It's made out of material that won't corrode and won't rust and won't fall apart over time just as we hope that our love will not do that. We wear it as a constant reminder in our hands, keeping us ever constantly vigilant to guard our marriage and guard the integrity of that thing. It's a very good symbol for what our marriage is designed to be. So I ask, why is baptism a good symbol for our salvation? Now, you all understand that the Bible was translated out of Greek. The New Testament was translated to Greek, right? Amen? Amen? All right, this is my baptism class. You've got to embrace the whole shtick of it. All right, now the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. Took me three years of seminary to learn that. I hope you enjoyed it. Also, since I used the GI Bill to pay for it, that's your tax dollars at work. Baptism, baptizo. All right, Greek grammar, don't fail me now, okay? Now, I ask you, my friends, if I were to take my Greek dictionary and look up the word baptizo then, what do you think would be on the other side? Baptism. Thank you for falling into my trap. <laughs> I, like, a, like a spider, I have spun my web. That is not what the word baptizo means. Yes, baptism does come from baptizo, but baptizo actually means the word immerse, to be completely covered in something. And that's quite often how it's used in our New Testament passages, like when we read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 27, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Notice again, even in this passage on baptism, we are made sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's the word immerse. For as many of you as were immersed into Christ have put on Christ. Or as you read in the book of Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, understand this is the word immerse. Do we not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now I ask you, my friends, do you want to be united with Christ merely ceremonially? Do you want to be united to Christ actually? That's what baptism is. 
That's why baptism, this, this ordinance, this ceremony where a person goes under the water and comes back out is a beautiful picture, symbol that corresponds to the salvation of God because it reminds us that we have been completely covered. We have been fully immersed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And unlike poor Achilles who catches one in the heel, we're 100% covered. We've been united with him by faith. That means that when Jesus was on the cross, by faith we are united with him on the cross. That means 100% of the wrath of God that our sin deserves is poured out on Jesus and not one drop of it is going to get past him to us. And baptism is a beautiful picture of that. And it's a reminder of us that God made us alive with Christ, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, he says in Romans. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. Baptism then is a picture that testifies to the completeness and the irreversibility of our salvation. That means that God will never leave us or forsake us if we have been united with him. It means that for God to reject a Christian would require him to reject his own son, and the Father will never reject the Son. So baptism is a beautiful and wonderful and magnificent picture of our salvation. So baptism does become a symbol. Baptism also does make our faith public. Now, I just talked a little bit about Greek grammar, so hang tight for the English grammar portion of our evening. I invite you to look at the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 12. And you're familiar with this story. This is Philip, the evangelist, who goes to the Samaritans and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke records in the gospel, in the, well, the gospel of Acts, I'm sticking with it. The gospel of Acts, chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I want you to consider the order of events you just read. First, Philip preaches the gospel. Then they believe. Then they're baptized. Paul makes this even more explicit in the book of Acts chapter 2, which is honestly my favorite passage on baptism, and Jesse forbade me to preach it. Not that I'm bitter or anything. In Acts chapter 2, you have the story of Peter, and Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and tongues of fire have descended on the disciples, and crowds have gathered trying to figure out what the commotion is, and, and Peter gets up and he preaches this, I mean, just whiz-bang gospel sermon. I mean, lays it right out there. This Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he is the Messiah. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Again, look at the order of events. Peter preaches the gospel. Now we have here, they were cut to the heart. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Their, their hearts literally are twisted inside of them to now believe and understand, and they realize that this is true. He's talking about me. I'm a sinner. I'm the one who crucified Jesus Christ. I'm the one who begged for him to be punished. What do I do? And Paul says, repent. And so all those who received his word, who believed his word, were baptized. You notice the order of events. I want you to understand something very clearly. Baptism in the New Testament never precedes faith or belief. 
There's no example in your New Testament scriptures of baptism coming before a person believes. It's always presented as the means by which a person is making public some, an already accomplished heart transformation that's occurred inside of them. Whether it's the Samaritans with Philip, whether it's the, the, uh, uh, the Jewish believers at Pentecost, whether it's Cornelius and his family, at all times a person believes and is baptized. And it's a public thing. It's a way that we make our faith that has happened public. And as Ryan said this morning so eloquently that I stole it, there's no such thing as a genuine personal relationship with the Lord that doesn't manifest itself in a genuine public relationship with the Lord. And the means by which God has given us, the tool He has given us to make our faith in His Son and salvation public is baptism. We don't have to get a skywriter and we don't have to learn smoke signals and we don't have to have banners hung from the ceiling like we just, you know, won the Stanley Cup. You know, I hope that didn't offend you. We don't have to do that. What we do is we engage in the work of baptism. And baptism is the tool that Jesus has given his church to make his saving transformation of a believer public. I say that again. Jesus is the one that gives us baptism. You're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given, in his parting words to his disciples as he commissions them to go out and build the church, leaves them a command. Go, make disciples, and baptize them. Now think about what it means when a person says, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. What are you saying in that? I'm saying that I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is the King of Kings. I believe He is the sovereign God of the universe. I believe Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. His throne is from everlasting to everlasting, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You know, but I, I don't really think I need to get baptized just because He said so. <laughs> Baptism really is an act of obedience. For many of us, it's the first act of obedience as new believers, but baptism is an act of real obedience to the real command of the real Lord and Savior who really died and really was buried and really was resurrected so that we might walk in newness of life. Let us follow him in it. <coughs> baptism does identify a believer with the church. And if you kept your hand there, I invite you to look again at the book of Acts chapter 2. Again, Peter's preached this whiz-bang gospel sermon at Pentecost. They heard this. They were cut to the hearts. They said, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. With many other words, he bore witness. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I hope you asked, added to what? That's a good question. Well, added to this. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, just think about that list in verses 42 through 47. 
Well, whatever they're being added to, it's folks who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer, giving, sharing, meeting needs, worship. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a church. Now, how did they know who was a part of the church? This is not an idle, abstract, seminary-style question. How did you know? There's 50,000 or so Jews in town for the festival of Pentecost. And even on a regular good old-fashioned day, Jerusalem at that time had somewhere between 600,000 and 1 million citizens roaming its streets. Most of them were going to the temple. So how did you know which ones were these followers of Jesus? How did you know who had been brought into the kingdom of God? Those who received his word, Paul says, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How did you know who was a part of the church and who wasn't? It wasn't even as simple as, well, who's at the temple and who's not? It wasn't who was listening to Peter and who wasn't, because thousands of people are listening to Peter. It was those who were coming forward and getting baptized and affirming that they were followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what baptism is designed to do. It's designed to identify you publicly before the world and before the church as a part of the church. You are saying in baptism, listen, I have been baptized, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are made to drink of one spirit, for the body doesn't consist of one member but of many. We're all being brought into one family of God. I am a U.S. citizen. I became a U.S. citizen on or about May 10th, 1982. I was born into this world. Now, you can also become a citizen by being naturalized, but that's just not how it worked for me, so I'm using me as an illustration. I'm a citizen of the United States. I have rights as a citizen. Do I not? I have the right to freely assemble and the right to not be illegally searched and seized. And I have all kinds of good rights. In fact, I've got at least 10 of them I can think of pretty quick. I've got rights. And those are my rights by virtue of my citizenship, right? I got those because I'm a citizen. Now, I'm allowed to travel outside of the country of the United States of America, true? Yes. And when I travel, my citizenship comes with me, right? But when I'm out and abroad, I bring with me documentation. I have a little piece of paper that I carry in my pocket, and I can show it to people, and it says, this guy... As a U.S. citizen, do you know what that's called? Passport. My passport. That's exactly right. This was not a trick question. I have a passport. It's blue, right? Ish. Whatever. It's a color. I have a passport. I carry it with me. And I hold it up to people and I go, I am a U.S. citizen. Now, wherever I'm traveling around the world, there is a building in that country. It's guarded by Marines. You can tell because they'll be the handsome guys over there that look kind of mean, but they're cute and cuddly like a teddy bear. All right. That building is called the U.S. Embassy, that's exactly right now, and we always say this, that the embassy is American soil on foreign land, right? And so the rules and the rights and the laws of America prevail here. And if you are a U.S. citizen, no matter where you are in the world, if you go to the U.S. embassy, you have the right to participate of all the embassy has to give you as a citizen, right? You can receive protection and comfort and support, and you can get new visas, and I, I don't know what else they do, but they do things, and you can get them, and you get them by virtue of your citizenship. Now, Let's say that I was traveling abroad to the nation of, oh, I don't know, France. In downtown Paris, there is a building, if Jason Bourne left it standing, <laughs> guarded by U.S. Marines. That's the American embassy. Now, let's say I'm walking down a rue, did I get that? A rue, down uh, the streets of Paris. And I say something just, just crazy insane, like no Parisian would trust what I'm saying anymore. I go, baguettes are just, you know, old, stale bread. And 
Mbappe is an overrated soccer player, right? And I say things like that, right? And now I have enraged this French mob, which is not the most terrifying mob I could imagine, but it's the one I've got, and I've got this enraged French mob chasing me down the rues of Paris, right? And I'm fearing for my life, and they're throwing old, stale, giant loaves of bread at me, and I'm sprinting down the, street, the rue, and I get to the American embassy, and I, I look at these Marines who look at me like this, and I say, let me in because I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen, and they go, show me your right. Now, see, that's the way it works. Listen, I have the right to be protected from the, you know, mildly intimidating French mob because I'm a citizen. Now, I submit to you, my friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And how did you get there? You were born into it. Not just born, you were born again into this kingdom of heaven. That is where your citizenship lies. However, you find yourself traveling in a foreign and hostile world right now. You have a work visa. But the kingdom of heaven has established all around the world thousands of embassies. And we call them local churches. And you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are a son of the king, no less. You're not just a citizen. You are a prince. You are an heir to the throne of this kingdom. And at any one of those embassies, you are entitled by right of your citizenship, which you received by birth into the kingdom, to go in and get all that that embassy has to provide for you. When you come into the church, you're entitled to teaching and to care and to comfort. You're entitled to receive care and and provision. You should have your needs met. You should be uh, reproved and corrected and trained in righteousness. All of those things are yours by right of your citizenship. However, it is not illegitimate of the embassy to say, may I see your passport, please? May I see that you are a a citizen of this kingdom? That is what baptism does. That's certainly what it's doing in Acts chapter 2. It's the way in which a person who has belonged and been transferred, what uh, they say, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, it's the way they make public and clear, I am with Jesus and with you. And that's why, in case you're wondering, believer's baptism is a membership requirement here at Emmanuel Bible Church. It is the, the passport that demonstrates that you are a citizen of the of the kingdom of heaven. So baptism doesn't save you, but it does become a symbol of our union with Christ. It does make our faith public. It, it does become an act of obedience. It does identify believers with the church, and ultimately it does testify to God's work of salvation. Now, what's the citizenship test to get naturalized into the kingdom of God? You're with me there? What is it that believers are supposed to know Is every Christian supposed to have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology textbook memorized? I certainly hope not. Don't tell my professors. Is every Christian, like the bare minimum standard of a Christian, to be able to explain and defend pre-lapsarianism versus post-lapsarianism? Let's hope not, right? Even I had to Google those, all right? That's not the line. But every believer should be able to explain two things. What the gospel is and why they have hope in it. Or as the Apostle Peter writes in his first epistle, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's the word apologia, to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Every Christian should be able to do two things, explain the gospel and explain why they have a reason for their hope to be in it. 
Now, every Christian has a different testimony. I don't know what yours is. Not yet. I know what mine is. I grew up in Texas. If the Bible Belt had a buckle, that'd be it. I went to church every Sunday. I went to church every Sunday night. I even went to church on Wednesday nights, like we used to do in the good old days. Believe it or not, I was in the handbell choir. I appreciate you not laughing at that. I mean, I had the bona fides. When I was nine years old, I was at children's church, which is a thing we used to do, and they had an altar call, which is a thing we used to do. And I heard someone say, if you want to go to heaven, come up right now. And I got to tell you, I had been presented with the options. (sighs) Heaven sounded a lot better. So I came forward, and nine-year-old Alex Hergrove, I said the prayer, and then I insisted on getting baptized, and I insisted on getting baptized the same day, which conveniently they were doing, because I didn't want to take any chances. What if I got in a car accident or something? <laughs> you know. So I was nine years old. I had said the sinner's prayer. I had come forward, and I had been baptized. I was not a Christian. I wasn't. Now, if you had asked me what the gospel was, I probably could have done a pretty good nine-year-old version of it, but Jesus is God, and he died on the cross for our sins, and and, and we need forgiveness, and he gives that to us if we ask him. That's a pretty decent gospel presentation, you know, for a nine-year-old, especially a Texan nine-year-old. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was at least, you know, sentences. <laughs> Don't give me a break. But I got to tell you, I didn't believe. I never doubted the historicity of those facts, you know what I'm saying? And I never doubted that, that God existed. I never doubted that Jesus was God's son. I never doubted there was a cross or even an empty tomb, as far as I can remember. But I did not have a heart that was attuned to him or wanted to be obedient to him. I didn't have a heart that loved the Lord and beat for him. I grew up and I lived a fairly benign Texan young adult adolescent life, except I didn't play football and I'm still a little bitter about that, but that's okay. I got my mom back by joining the Marine Corps. (laughs) So I joined the Marine Corps when I was 20 years old and it became pretty rapidly apparent at that time that I wasn't a believer. There was no part of my life that actually corresponded to what a believer's life should look like. I didn't attend church. I didn't pray. I didn't read my Bible. I, I didn't pursue obedience. I, I did all those things that you think Marines are wont to do and more. When I was 23 years old and I had just come back from Iraq, I was driving cross-country from North Carolina to San Diego, California. I had stopped in Texas because if you've never had their tacos, they're legit. I had stopped in Texas and I went out to dinner with a friend of mine and my friend said to me, I think I need to talk to you about Jesus. I said to my friend, no, 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 it's okay, I'm a Christian. And my friend said, I don't think that's true. The conversation went downhill from there. (laughs) It was not a pleasant conversation. But my friend was faithful and told me that there was no evidence in my life of salvation. There was no reason that I should have any hope in the truth of the gospel being applied to me. I thought about that conversation and from Texas all the way to San Diego, which, by the way, they invented planes. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. But I thought about that all the way from Texas to San Diego. And I thought they are right. Gosh, there's no part of my life that corresponds to what the Christian life is supposed to look like. I mean, I didn't know all of these words at the time, but if I were to read First John, which is effectively what my friend was walking me through, I, I didn't love the Lord. I didn't love obedience to the Lord. I didn't love the... Lord's people in the church. I, I wasn't a Christian. And when I got to San Diego, California, I realized that was true. I wasn't a Christian. 
So I was 23 years old and I was in the cab of a Chevy S10 pickup truck in the parking lot of Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California, which, <laughs> and um, it was there that I, 23-year-old Iraq War returning Marine, wept like a child and asked for God's forgiveness. Now, I would like to say that I've never sinned since then, but my wife will testify otherwise. I know the man I was before that, and I know the man I am after that, and to quote the, reform, or quote the Puritan, uh, I'm not the man I will be, but praise God, I'm not the man I was. And someone were to ask me, Alex, can you explain to me the gospel? And I think I could do that. That a holy God is going to bring his punishment on all injustice and sin, of which I am a chief proponent. But God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And that he gives us that faith, not as a result of our works, and not as a result of trying harder, and not as a result of doing, and not even as a result of getting baptized when you're nine years old. But because of his mercy and love as a gift, but if you were to ask me, Alex, why do you have hope in the gospel? Why do you believe that's true? I'm going to say because it's changed my life. It's transformed who I am. I saw a person that didn't love the Lord now be in love with the one who would redeem him and save him and bring him to salvation. I've seen a man who had no desire for obedience, and I didn't pretend to be the worst human being that ever lived. But now I, I'm grieved when I sin. And I desire to follow the Lord in obedience with my heart. I saw a guy that had no bearing. The church meant nothing to me in my life other than it was a thing I had to go to when I was back home in Texas and my mom wasn't offended. To falling in love with the church. I say it all the time. I've got the best job at Emmanuel Bible Church, and it's absolutely true. I mean, Jesse's got a pretty cool gig, I admit, but I'm the pastor of membership and baptism. <laughs> I mean, I spend all of my week reading testimonies of how God is saving people. I spend all of my time reading about how God has taken wretched sinners like you and like me and opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel and brought us to salvation and is at work sanctifying us. And if you've got a better job than that, I don't know what it is. I love the church. Every Christian should be able to do two things. Explain the gospel and give a reason why they have hope in it. Now, you might be asking yourself, hey, Alex, if this thing that you're doing now tonight is a sermon, what am I supposed to do with this? I just have two quick applications for you. First of all, if you're here and you're a believer and you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to get baptized. Come see me after this. I'm not hard to find. I'm with a scraggly beard and a tie. You can pick me out of a crowd. Come talk to me. I'd love to help you get baptized at Emmanuel Bible Church. If you're here and you're not a believer, come talk to me. I want to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and why you need to put your faith in him for salvation. But also I've got another application, and it's a pretty straightforward one. I want you to understand what baptism is designed to do. If you're a parent or you're a grandparent, if you're a friend, I want you to be able to explain to people what baptism is and why they should be doing it. Trust me, parents, you'll make my life a lot easier. I encourage you to investigate baptism. I encourage you to take great joy and, and, and confidence from baptism. It is supposed to be an Ebenezer in the life of a Christian. It is supposed to be a thing that we look back on and, and derive confidence from. 
not because it removed dirt from our bodies, but because it was an appeal to God for a good conscience because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we love and worship you because you are the God of our salvation. You are our rock and our redeemer. You are the one who has sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins so that we who were dead in our trespasses could walk in the newness of life with you. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you that they will do so. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has never professed their faith in you publicly in baptism that, that they would do so. Father, we love you and we trust you, but it's only because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.